0: Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. And this is Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we do part two of imperialism. We do India, China, and Japan. So, um, India. We start with India. Uh, From 1700 to 1856, India is slowly being taken over by Europeans, and then by the British specifically. Uh, The Indian empires and kingdoms are absorbed or defeated in war. And they are absorbed not by England, but by the East India Company. They are to produce spices, opium, especially opium from up in Afghanistan, where it's still coming from, and tea. And there's mineral wealth, and for this 150 years, a company runs India for a company's profits. Now, that company also had a mercenary army. It had a navy. It was one of the most powerful armies and navies on earth. And that kind of ends with the sepoy mutiny in 1856. The sepoys are Indian, both Hindu and Muslim. Um, military employees of the East India Company. They were the local guards and local troops that were hired to maintain order. Not that many white people, Europeans, were going to India to run it or run the company in it and to, to do the manufacturing and make sure that um, the economy was working. The Seapoint Muniny tried to throw out Europeans to be pro-Indian was to be anti-European. That was the idea. We're going to throw out. We're going to make an India for the Indians. Now, who was defined as an Indian was it was an interesting question that really hadn't been quite worked out yet. Um, that's in the process of becoming, and we will see that in the twentieth century what happens with that. But at the moment, it was. People who live on the subcontinent who aren't British, and we have that in common. The Seapoint mutiny comes close to actually doing so. The result is that the British army comes in, that the British government comes in. And the decision is made that India is worth too much money. It is what will eventually be called the jewel in the crown of the British Empire. It's just it's too much money. We can't let it go. We can't. So but we also can't let the East India Company screw it up for us. So Britain is going to have to run it itself. And from this point on, from 1856 to 1947, the idea is Brit- India, British India was going to be British India. That the British are going to impose their culture, their will. They are going to run India as if it's part of England. That's the idea. So, what are our results? Well, first is development railroads especially the british government wants to connect parts of india especially the northern parts with the southern parts because there's no rivers that go from the north to the south and so they wanted to be able to to connect the interior of india to the coasts and northern india to southern india so they're going to build in railroads. They're going to put in a British army. They're going to put in the British Navy. We're going to put in British white public servants who are going to go to, Brit- go to India and help run it. But we're also going to make Indians our little brown brothers. We're going to make them brown English. So that we create, the well, we don't create, the British create a middle class of British educated, culturally British. They may still be Hindu or Muslim, but they're going to speak English. They're going to be educated in, if not Oxford and Cambridge, in, this, in the learning of Oxford and Cambridge. In British schools in India. Um you know Gandhi's going to be one of these people and the idea is to create a british indian class which is going to be pro english in its culture and help england run its account, or help england run india and in order to not be like the peasants it was a way of moving up the british needed indians to help run india the East Indian Company didn't care. They wanted the money. Britain, on the other hand, cares. They want Indians to help run India. Now, is this kumbaya and everyone gets along? No, of course not. And it's very complicated, and lots of bad things happen. And the, India is definitely not England. As much as it's as much as in Britain might be trying to develop it, it's also not. The Midlands of England. It's just not going to be developed, not going to be cared about, not going to be treated like it's English. And so what you have is a colonized and imperialized area, but also one that has a large civic service, a large public service, and large industrial development. So when we get to the 20th century, we're going to talk about independence. India should, had a lot of the ingredients that it should fare better. Now, what happens is India cracks up. India will break up into pieces. And we'll talk about that when we do the 20th century. So, uh, And that will set it back. But unlike many of the places in Africa or some of the places in Asia, India actually had both a long tradition of empire and government and philosophy and culture but also had many of the ingredients that Europeans said they wanted to do that the whole point of imperialism was to do these things and they actually tried to do them in India of all the places they are most successful in India that it's not that successful tells you something about the entire project that brings us to China In China, from 1644 to 1911, we have the Manchu dynasty. M-A-N-C-H-U. They are named the Manchus because the the Manchus, a tribe of northern kind of Viking barbarians, conquered China. They came out of the forest of Manchuria and conquered China in the 1640s. So... This is big China. Um, In my 101 class, we talk about small China versus large China. This is big China. This is a China the Manchus are going to conquer Tibet. They are going to reach down to the jungles in Vietnam. They are going to conquer. They're going to unite Manchuria with China. So this is areas north of Korea. They're going to dominate Korea culturally, if not politically. And they're going to stretch all the way out into Central Asia to the Himalayas. This is the largest extension of China since the Mongols, since the Yuan, Y-A-U-N dynasty in the 1200s, 1300s, something like that. So this is big. And so because it's big, it's open to the world. It starts open to the world. The problem is, is that the people who are showing up are not Central Asians looking to trade. It's Europeans coming by boat to the coasts. And those Europeans are advanced. They have cannon. They have guns. They have all this new technology. Soon they'll have steamships. And it is clear China is behind. And they all keep showing up. The French show up. The British show up. The Dutch show up. And the idea is they keep wanting stuff from China. There's not one European. There's like 20 European countries and companies that keep wanting to make new negotiations. And China is used to dealing with empires. One negotiation. Not 20 little ones. with everyone wants a different deal. And increasingly China is losing control of its trade. And so it tries to close off trade with Japan. With the Europeans. It tries to shut itself off. It's big. The idea is we can we can have an internal economy. And do fine. The problem is, is. The Europeans especially the British. Won't let it. It's too big of a market to sell stuff to. It has too much stuff we need. And you get the series called. The Opium Wars. Because the idea was. China did not want to. Buy. British opium from India, British Britain had too much opium and it didn't really want to sell it in England. And so it said, well, the Chinese want it. So let's sell it to them. And China said, no, we don't want you selling drugs in our country. And the British said, well, we're going to blow up your ports until you say yes. And that's essentially what happened. They'll take Hong Kong. An island off the coast, make it a trade port. Um, They'll burn down a bunch of coastal cities and burn up the Chinese Navy. This was a humiliation for China. We are an ancient, we are the greatest people in the whole wide world. Is basically the Chinese attitude. And throughout their history, they have a perfectly, the the evidence would bear them out. They are certainly the largest, most successful people in East Asia. They're the world's largest economy through most of world history. They have a perfectly valid explanation for why they're the greatest people in the whole wide world. And so losing to a bunch of Brits from across the ocean is a humiliation. The British forced China to buy opium to offset their trade imbalance. The Chinese didn't want to buy anything from the British. They just wanted to sell stuff to the British. And the British are like, no, you have to buy something. Otherwise, we keep giving you money. And so opium not silver or gold. See, trade was done, especially large trade in silver and gold, which the Chinese needed. The British don't want to give that up. They're like, no, 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 no. We we have too much opium. We want silver and gold. We want our money. And so this is humiliation. China has is forced to open up. Now, an irony happens is that the British... Who are perfectly reasonable about this. As crazy as that sounds. Are like look. You're the emperor of your. You're the emperor. You're allowed to make rules. We just want to be able to sell stuff. We want to be able to make money. You are perfectly able. We accept. Since we do this. That you're allowed to tax. The stuff we sell. And in fact. And this is the part that always blew my mind. But. The British say, we'll run the tax collection. We'll do the customs exchange. We'll do it for you. You don't have to hire people. It won't cost you anything. We'll do it for you. And here's the part that blows my mind. The English were honest. See, because the workers for the companies got a weekly or monthly wage... They had no incentive to lie, to cheat, to steal. It was the the company wants the emperor to be happy. The individual wants to keep their job and make good money. And so the British tax collectors in China collecting taxes on British goods were actually more honest than the chinese tax collectors working for the emperor and the reason why was as as the manchu government got poorer or had or ended up in civil war later in the 1860s and couldn't didn't have the money to necessarily pay all of their civil servants they said what always happens you could take a little bit off the top you could offset your pay with a little bit off the top. We understand it. So the British will at that and go, that's totally corrupt. But it, everyone else said, no, 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 this is the way it works. Um, this actually happened in Iraq in 2003, 2004. It's, it's it's one of the funny, weird things, but it's how culturalism and cultural imperialism works. So we, we invade Iraq, we conquer Iraq. Great, 2003. So now we have to run Iraq. And one of the things that weirdly in the in the opening days, in the opening things, when it was still kind of peaceful and, and even though things were starting to be burned down, there wasn't yet a civil war, was Americans saw how cops behaved with traffic tickets. And this is what would happen. Uh, Iraqi police officer who was probably a member of the bath party work, working for Saddam Hussein would pull somebody over for speeding on the highway right they were going 75 it was they're guilty perfectly fine the cop would walk up they'd have a conversation and the cop would say here's your ticket and what the person who was did the speeding did was take out cash and pay the cop. Right there. Huh. And Americans looked at it and said, wow, that's freaking corrupt. They're pulling people over. They're getting paid. They're making people pay them. Huh. That's terrible. We have to stop that. And Americans stopped that or forced the cops to stop that. And then, Screwed everything up. Blew the whole thing up. Why? Because what Americans looked at it and said, in America, a cop pulls you over, he gives you a ticket. You then have to go to court sometime in the future, or you have to pay your fine. How do you pay your fine? Well, you can use a credit card, or you can write a check and send it in. And you send it into the court. The court then has someone who collects all those checks and then brings it to the bank. Now, now you're in Iraq. And so so they looked at that and said, that's the way it's supposed to be. And cops get paid every two weeks and they get paid a good amount of money so they don't need any money off the top. If they take money off the top, they're stealing. Cops in Iraq were paid differently. In order to keep costs down for the central government... In Iraq, it allowed cops to take a percentage of their pay off the top. So when they pulled somebody over, they got five bucks, ten bucks off that ticket. Some percentage. I don't know what the percentage is. The person paid it on the spot because of two reasons. One, they didn't have checking accounts, the average Iraqi did not have a checking account in the bank. Because in Iraq, most of the banks are going to be owned by the government anyway. So do I really want to put my money in the bank? It could disappear. Who knows? It's owned by Saddam Hussein or one of his cronies. So one is I don't have a checking account to write a check to send it in. And the banking system didn't exist where now some guy can take 500 checks and go bring it to the bank and deal with that on an individual basis. And do it for the court of Alambar province. They didn't have that infrastructure. There was still a cash-based system. The second thing is, do you really want to go to court to protest your ticket? If I pay the cop, it's over. It's done. He crumples up the ticket. I'm, I'm free to go. Life goes on. I want to protest my ticket. I now have to go to a court, a Saddam Hussein court, with a Saddam Hussein judge, and a Saddam Hussein institution, with pictures of Saddam Hussein everywhere, and then say, I'm not guilty of anything. Do I really want to do that, or would I rather just have it taken care of right then? It's a $40 fine. I've got 40 bucks. Here you go. Let me go on my way. And that was the idea. What one culture viewed as corrupt, the other culture, because it had limitations that were different from the other culture, viewed as normal. And so the British in India in China collected taxes, collect it more efficiently than Chinese officials do. This makes money for the emperor. The emperor is happy, which is a problem because the emperor now has the incentive to allow more and more and more European people and goods into the country, which means Chinese people dislike the weakening of government powers, which means they increasingly dislike the Manchus who aren't really Chinese. They're from Manchuria. They're barbarians from the far north forests. And what you end up with is the Taiping Rebellion. A massive rebellion that will kill 60 million people in 14 years. It is probably the most destructive civil war ever. And the goal was to overthrow the emperor, to make a China for the Chinese, to eventually get rid of Europeans, uh, to get rid of the emperor. And the Europeans, who had just fought against the emperor, now side with the emperor. Europeans supported the emperor, and the emperor needs European support, their guns, their technology, in order to win, which makes people even more upset because it's clear the emperor has thrown and the Manchus have thrown their loyalty not to China, but to Europe, to Europeans. And so, in 1900, you get the Boxer Rebellion. And the Boxer Rebellion is, whereas the Taiping Rebellion was, let's get rid of the Emperor. The Taiping, the Boxer Rebellion is, let's get rid of Europeans. If we get rid of the Europeans, then then the Emperor will fall, because he won't have any support. Chinese people don't like him. And if the Europeans are gone, then that'll be fine. So... The Boxer Rebellion happens mostly in urban areas, and whereas the Taiping Rebellion is is more, it happens in urban areas, but it's very big in the rural areas. Um, And what happens is the West, Britain, the United States, France, Germany, all send troops to save the emperor. American troops invaded China to save the emperor this made the emperor more even more pro west because they saved him and the feeling is that the emperor is anti china and so the answer for chinese people for chinese um nationalists is why do we even need an emperor we've had an emperor 2000 years 2500 years and this emperor is a is is a um stooge for the Europeans. Why do we even need one? And in 1911, while the Europeans were all worried with what's going on in Europe and getting ready for the First World War, there's a a bureaucratic rebellion that overthrows the emperor. Doesn't change much else, but it overthrows the emperor and creates China as a republic. And that's in 1911. The last emperor is overthrown. He's not murdered. He goes into a retirement In 1911. And China becomes a state. Not an empire anymore. It becomes a state. And it becomes a republic. And the idea is. To be pro-Chinese. Is to be anti-European. So to be pro-European. Is to be anti-Chinese. That brings us to Japan. We start with the Tokugawa shogunate. Tokugawa, T-O-K-O-G-A-W-A, shogunate, S-H-O-G-U-N-A-T-E, from 1600 to 1868. This is military rule, a military dictatorship by a family, the Tokugawas, and they're very conservative. They had defeated the other families, and they dominated the imperial family. So, there's an emperor, but the emperor is a figurehead. The emperor is weak and all the real power is in this family. And they're keeping the peace. So, they're conservative. They don't want change because any change might lead to a lessening of their control slash power. There's little foreign trade because Japan has very little of anything anybody wants. In fact, when the first European showed up, the 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 Japanese executed them and kicked them out and nobody showed up back for a while. Um, Eventually the, the Dutch show up and they're allowed to have one port on one of the small islands because their stuff is still, it's, it's good. It's good, good modern stuff. And it's like, well, we still need to be able to get that stuff, but we really don't want, we don't want to be China and is increasingly the view of what's happening to China being overrun, being attacked, being carved up by Europeans, and saying, we don't want that. Now, Japan has not a lot of natural resources. It didn't have a lot that people wanted, and China was right across the sea. So if you're a European, you want to sell stuff and get stuff from China. You could care less about Japan. There's also little support for merchants. Buying and selling goods was distasteful. So you have the leadership class that run the society. You've got the farming class that makes food for the society. And then you have the the industrial class, the working class. The idea is the trade class, the guild class. That's who we're talking about. People who make stuff that people need in order to do their other jobs. So you're black, you're smiths, you're blacksmiths, you're goldsmiths. Those aren't merchants. Merchants don't make the things. Merchants just buy and sell the stuff, and so that was seen as distasteful. That was seen as a seedy way of making money. Um, either you make something, you make food, or you make a good, or you run the society. That's that was your jobs, and you picked one. Well, you didn't really pick. You were you were given one, depending on who your parents and family were. Um. This meant the economy was quite localized, quite small. And in 1854, Commodore Perry, an American admiral, sails into Edo Bay with orders to start trade with Japan and also in need of coal and... Um, the Japanese tried to attack him and he just turns his giant guns and shell first destroys whatever navy came at him and then shells the city and the Edo, uh, the cities give up and go whoa, whoa 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 and what this did was scare Japan See, at this point the United States did not want to own Japan they didn't want to colonize, they didn't want to imperialize in 1854 it, it still has the continent of North America to colonize it doesn't want to go colonizing Japan, it just wants to Buy and sell goods in East Asia before everyone else gets there. You couldn't get to China because everyone else was carving up China. So it's like, whoa, Japan, no one's at Japan. Let's let's try Japan. Let's see what happens. And what does this was scare Japan? It scared the leadership, saying, This is it. This is the this is we came close. This could we could be China now. The Americans. We got lucky with the Americans. They didn't really want to stay. There's not a lot of a, a lot of them. They've got other things to do, but maybe the next people won't be so willing to make it, uh, an easy deal and and go away. And so what this creates is a civil war, and that's called the Meiji Restoration of 1866. The Meiji Restoration where the, the emperor is going to be empowered. And this is a war, a civil war between conservatives and modernists. Those who say, look, when the Europeans come back, we'll just cut their heads off and, and throw them into the sea. We can, we can defeat them. We don't have to change, which is the Tokugawa family, which makes complete sense, right? They are going to lose if we change. The system is going to have to change. But there's also, but they were against the modernists, who looked to the emperor as the leader for them and said, look, um, and you can understand why the emperor would want to join the modernists. The modernists are like, emperor, you could lead. Whereas the Tokugawa is like, no, emperor, you're just a figurehead. I, you look pretty and d- we'll do the job. And so the modernists want to change. They want Japan to become like the Europeans. We have to become them. Otherwise, we'll be taken over. It is better to become like the alligator than to be eaten by the alligator. And so we have a short civil war. And the emperor wins. The modernists win. And this is the last samurai. And we have a picture in, in the video, which is a bunch of traditional samurai. But in the back are American, uniformed, modern, Western troops. They're Japanese, but their their uniform is no longer a traditional um, Japanese one. And in one photo, we have the past and the future and what's going to happen. And what happens is the Tokugawa's, the samurai, they lose. And the emperor and the modernists win. And Japan industrializes. It's going to become like the West. How? Well, it copies the West. It just says, it sends Japanese people all over the place and says, learn how to do European stuff. Um, One of those places, it's the University of Pennsylvania. Their School of Architecture did what invented or more or less invented Bow Arts. Um, The 30th Street Station is probably our best example of this. There is a, or was, I don't, I think it was bombed, but in the in the war, but there was a train station in Japan that looked exactly like the 30th Street Station. It still may, for all I, I know. I went to a conference uh, at the uh, College uh, Community College of Philadelphia, where one of the colleagues gave a gave a dis- discussion about the Japanese who came to the University of Pennsylvania in the late 19th century and early 20th century and learned bow arts, and then went back to Japan and built bridges built factories, built buildings that look like they're right out of northeastern America. They look like they're out of Philadelphia, look like they're out of Pittsburgh. They are beau arts. And so Japan industrializes by copying the West. It's not going to invent the wheel. It's not going to invent its own industrialization. It's just going to copy. So the British make good ships. We're going to copy British ships. The Germans have a good army. We're going to copy the German army. Americans have awesome architecture and huge factories. We're going to build our factories like Americans. We're going to build uh, American architecture. Americans, by 1900, Americans are building skyscrapers. We're going to build like that. We are going to copy the best of what's around. So Japan becomes the only non-European state up to this point to industrialize. Why does that matter? Because, one, it means Japan needs imperialism. Japan needs resources. It doesn't have them. So it's going to need to get them. It needs timber. It needs iron. It needs coal. It needs rubber. It needs aluminum. It needs stuff. And so it needs to own territory. And so in 1895, it attacks China and takes Korea. Then it has its eye on Manchuria, which is this vast um, resource area to the north of China. Not exploited, it's virgin industrial territory, like the, the Rocky Mountain West in America in the 1900s. It's there for the taking. The problem is the Russians want it too. And the Russians have a lot of Vladivostok and Port Arthur, and they have a series of, of, they have a navy out there. They have the most powerful navy in Asia. So if Japan wants to take Manchuria from China, it's going to have to deal with the Russians. And so in 1905, it attacks, it sneak attacks the Russian navy. It sinks the Russian navy. The Russians will send the Baltic fleet 10,000 miles around. All the way to the Pacific. By the time it showed up, it was in terrible shape. It had been at sea for two or three years. Um, two years, maybe. I don't even know. Maybe less at this point because it's an industrialized navy. But when it shows up, Japan is near its resources and smashes that navy. And it showed that Japan is at the big boys' table. Japan is the weakest of the great powers, but having captured Korea, having defeated the Russians, It got a seat at the big boys table. It had industrialized to the point that unlike China, unlike the Philippines, unlike India, it wasn't going to be taken over. In fact, it was going to take over other places. Could it fight a war with the British? No. Could it fight a war with the Americans? Not in 1900 it couldn't. But. When negotiations happened, it got invited to the table. People now had to worry about what would the Japanese do? How would the Japanese think? And Britain makes an alliance with the Japanese. Hey, they got a big navy. They got a powerful army. They're an ally. And so Japan is the weakest of the great powers. And the great powers are the United States, England, um, France, Germany. Italy, which is pretty as weak as Japan, if not a little bit stronger, but pretty weak. And Russia. The big six and Japan gets a seat at that table. So it shows if you industrialize. You get an army, you get a Navy, you get income for your people. You have to imperialize. You have to take over other peoples. And. You get to sit at the big boys table. You get to be taken seriously. Nobody in Latin America, no one in Africa, no one in South Asia, not India. India is 3,000 years old. No one cares. They took it over, they're extracting resources from it. Japan gets to set a big boys' table. And so that's where we will end. In 1900, that's the world. The big six, of which only one is a non European industrialization is changing who is rich and who is poor. Um, You have the elite rich, you have the working class poor, and now you have a new middle class of skilled laborers who are making money and fairly conservative. Um, We have liberty and liberalism, but also a conservatism. We have change, but not huge change no one wants a french revolution but at the same time no one wants to stay they people acknowledge the world is changing and society has to change with it and that's where we'll end this is the end of part one of history 102 our next lecture we will start with what is life like in 1900 we're gonna have a little mary poppins and talk about how great life is in 1900. Thank you.